Well, we have two provocative readings this morning, actually three if you include Psalm 23, and, uh, but not the time to dwell on all of those, but just keep as a sort of the backdrop to this, that gospel reading about the urgency of going out and inviting others in, and uh, let that be a backdrop to our uh, time of focus on this letter to the church in Ephesus. Or as you recall, we are in the midst of a sermon series, those of you all who have been here the last few weeks. This is our fourth Sunday on Ephesians, and we have invited as well some home time uh, reflection on Ephesians. And you can pick up uh, this week's uh, question and answer off the internet, or you can pick up a sheet on the way out this morning that's at the back of the church if you'd like to do a little work at home as well with your family or by yourself. Only a night or two is expected or uh, intended with that, not a huge, huge commitment. And if I may also give a backdrop just to remind us where we are, because we began about a year ago a new spiritual quest. It was something that seemed huge to us. Indeed, it probably is huge. It was a calling. Uh, it was rooted, if you recall, in the prayer of Jabez, Oh Lord, that you would bless us a lot. And enlarge our territory, our territory of influence, if you will. And that your hand would be with us. Hand a rich metaphor for your spirit, your power to be with us. Because the calling was so large, it couldn't be done by willpower or by human ways. It needed uh, divine ways and superhuman power, even the Holy Spirit. And so the context was uh, a call we believed, we embraced, vestry, staff, Many of you uh, personally took on as a, an assignment from the Lord, and that is that uh, we are to find the ones blowing the whistle. It was an image from Titanic with the woman uh, calling out by her whistle to be rescued from the icy waters of the North Atlantic in that story of the sinking of the Titanic. And that there are those out there, as one member of our church said in the midst of this, there are thousands of them out there in Somerville. The unchurched, the de-churched, who were once there but are now away. And our task is to bring them back into the body of Christ to give them that new experience or renewing experience of life in Christ within the body called St. Paul's Somerville. Now, the number was huge. Uh, the December goal was December 2011, only two months away. And the number was that we would enjoy some Sunday attendance during December of 1,200 folks. About three times as many as what we have as average worship attendance um, uh, a year ago. We're actually about halfway there now, enjoying almost 600 a week here at St. Paul's. And what does the Lord have in store for us for the last two months? Well, we don't know. And it's not so much the goal of achieving by gritted teeth that there are 1,200 here, but it was a conviction that God gave that to us as a task and an assignment. If the 1,200 were to come a year from now or two years from now, I would say that's all in God's hand. But the word we had was our work was to be aiming for 1,200 in December of 2011. So there are various ways and means to accomplish that. And one of them we will hear about as we look at the fourth chapter of Ephesians this morning. And if you can find that in your Bible, uh, if you brought a smartphone or an iPad, maybe as we've suggested, or your own home Bible, or want to use the one in the pew, the, red, the bright red book in the pew, I think uh, 
Eleanor said it's on page 828 when she read this lesson. If you can find Ephesians 4, we won't dwell a huge amount of time in Ephesians 4, but it's probably worth just keeping it before you as we touch base with Ephesians 4. Now, not only the context within a huge call upon our lives a year ago to enlarge our territory of influence of the gospel, but also within the context of this sermon series now, remember that uh, we have talked about uh, a reminder, first and foremost, what has Christ Jesus accomplished? Which is what Paul focuses on in the opening of this letter and continues to focus upon for a few chapters. And we talked a few weeks ago about that aha moment when the, eye, the scales fall from our eyes for the first time or perhaps yet again. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all His glory as an aha moment of new conversion and transformation and excitement for our lives and about our lives. And a week ago we spoke of uh, the disciples of Christ as friends with one another. Not only friends of Jesus, but friends with one another and friends with one another in the community. So we used the word participation and talked about participation in worship, participation in small groups, and participation in quiet time, daily quiet time, that we spend one-on-one with the Lord as a way of being partakers beyond the aha moments in this new life in Christ or in this renewed life in Christ. And so today, just a prepositional change in the title. Instead of friends of Jesus as friends with one another, participation, let's think about friends of Jesus as friends to, T-O, to one another. Practical ways to fulfill God's purpose that we become a community that accomplishes two wonderful unintended uh, tasks. And one is that we are built up ourselves among one another, strengthened and nourished for our life in Christ. And that living in that sort of community with a degree of love and joy and oneness, unity, that others are attracted to this community. And so the task becomes twofold to invite those to grow to that number given to us, to bring the unchurched and the dechurched, but the second part of that task, and that they will stay because they're drawn to stay. They've been invited to a feast and they're drawn to stay. So as we live healthy lives, living as friends with one another and with Christ, it becomes an attractive and beautiful picture to others, we hope. As we live that unselfconsciously, but authentically and genuinely, so that people might say of us, see how they love each other. I'd love to be a part of that love. So, just simply to cut to the chase and leave proper time for us to get home for lunch, let me simply identify three items we might consider for our own lives that Paul makes reference to in this passage. So, if you will... Look at the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And also be aware of where this chapter begins and where his letter continues, if you will, as a prisoner for the Lord. He's not talking about that in any spiritualized sense. 
he is talking about the literal fact that he is writing this letter from prison. He writes this letter from prison with joy and gladness that he has been counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. And he sees his imprisonment, his persecution, if you will, as a medal of honor for him because it's for Jesus. So he doesn't say this for you to feel sorry for him. He writes this for you to be glad for him, he's saying. He's saying, I've caused such a disturbance. I've touched some hearts and brought folks to the faith. They've thrown me in prison for it. And not only that, I get to now preach to those in prison, and some of them have come to faith as well. He's in Rome, writing to a church in Ephesus, and he's saying, as a prisoner for the Lord. But he also has a word for them and for us. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is your calling? Your calling is the fact that you have seen what Jesus accomplished upon the cross. Your calling is the fact that you have had an aha moment of discovery and insight that has elicited in other aha moments and conversions of your life as more and more your life is given over fully to the Lord. And he now says, and this is how you are to treat one another. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. First item to think on this morning of three. Humility. T.S. Eliot writes in one of his poems, humility is endless. It means we can never get enough of it because we never have enough of it. That pride continues to raise itself up and constantly we have to make ourselves self-aware, maybe even pray, Lord, help me to decrease that you may increase. It's even more challenging for those of you who are leaders to be humble as leaders, where you're called to be on top, if you will, but Jesus says, in my kingdom, even the leaders are to be foot-washing servant leaders. No matter what your title is, humility is endless. Whether you're 20 years old or 40 years old, 60 or 80, I have no doubt that you are still working to decrease, that he would increase. Martin Luther said of humility, he says, humility is a decision to let God be God. <laughs> Think about that. Humility is a decision to let God be God. He's God. I am not. He's God. You are not. Now, even more richly for our purposes today with Ephesians 4, I want to quote to you a comment made by John Calvin from the 16th century as well, like Martin Luther. And Calvin, John Calvin notes that in this passage and in this letter, that humility is put first in a direction moving towards unity. So he writes this, St. Paul puts humility first. Do you see it in that first verse or second verse? Be, be completely humble is where he begins. And so Calvin offers this, the reason is that he has put humility first, is that he is about to speak about unity. And humility is the first step to reach unity. And so he continues and says, Let us remember then that in cultivating brotherly and sisterly kindness, we must begin with 
humility. And he explains why even further. He says, where does impudence, pride, and insult towards brethren and cistern? Isn't cistern a word too? If brethren's a word, cistern ought to be a word, it seems to me. So we can um, uh, contemporize a little bit John Calvin writing from 500 years ago. Um, Whence comes, from where does it come, the quarrels and taunts and reproaches, except everyone loving himself too much and everyone pleasing himself too much. For the opposite of humility is pride, power and control. So Calvin concludes this thought about why humility has been put first in this movement towards unity in the body. He says, He who lays aside haughtiness and ceases, stops to please himself, will become meek, gentle, and easy. And whoever is endued with such moderation, here's the key, Whoever is endued with such moderation will overlook and tolerate many things in the brethren. You see, humility elicits forth in love. And it's a love that does not demand, I have it my way, I get it my way, I get it. But love that says, you first. And he says what it produces in a community is the willingness to overlook, if you will, the eccentricities and difficulties of other personalities and the willingness to tolerate many things in the body because of your own humility. And so he says, it must come first. Simply to compare and contrast and bring us a little bit more contemporaneous, C.S. Lewis always writes brilliantly on pride and humility and he speaks of the opposite of humility in this way. He says, there is one vice of which no one in the world is free. Sometimes it's not so good to be included in everything. Um, but this is all inclusive. There is one vice of which no one in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes, hates, when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they could even be guilty of themselves. The essential vice the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. He rebelled against God, see, he set up his own kingdom. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Remember the words of Martin Luther. Humility is a decision to let God be God. He's God, we are not. Paul writes to us that for the unity of the body to be enjoyed, and I would simply add that the fellowship, the joy, the goodness of the body to be enjoyed, it begins with the humility of those who are participating in that. A second practical issue to speak to, to live in a community of wellness. And that is the psychological term and word is triangulation. Somebody has written that triangulation is the favoritest game in the church, in the body of Christ. Do you know how triangulation works? I see it virtually every week somewhere, and you perhaps do as well. 
A, person A, has a grievance with person C. It may be valid, it may not be, it doesn't matter. But instead of A going directly to C, instead A talks to B about it. And A wants B to confront C, but without telling C that A has the grievance. You get it? It's, we do it. We're guilty. I've tried to repent of it numerous times and tried not to behave that way once it got named in my life as well. The favoritist game in the church. Is there a way to counter that? Well, first of all, to recognize what we're doing. That avoidance of conflict creates more conflict by not dealing with things directly. So, at least for our vestry and for our staff, we have some ground rules. It would behoove our whole community to live with these same ground rules. Our vestry and staff ground rule is this. We do not communicate anonymous messages that came from A instead of going to C, went to the vestry B. If A wishes to remain anonymous, so does the complaint. B, the vestry member, should tell A that we will go together to talk to C, whoever that person might be, Tyler in charge of faith at home, Tina in charge of children, the rector because it's dealing with a financial issue. A will, uh, will tell B that I will go with you to C, but I won't carry that message anonymously because it just creates more confusion and more difficulty. Triangulation, the favoritist game in the church, let us repent of it if we're guilty of it. A needs to talk to C about the concern they have regarding C. Leave B out of it. Straight lines. And third, gossip. Gossip. Wikipedia has a lovely definition of gossip. I thought it would help if I share it with you. Gossip is malicious talk or rumor, especially about the person or private affairs of others, meant to harm the subject's reputation in the community. It is one of the oldest and most common means of sharing facts and views, but also has a reputation for the introduction of errors and variations into the information transmitted. In other words, gossip often gets enlarged and exaggerated as it makes its way around. And please be aware that gossip and triangulation are intimate friends with one another. And beware of that. So, there you have it. Paul says there's a trajectory for the body of Christ, the fourth chapter. It begins with a life lived worthy of the calling we have received. And it begins also by... Uh, by embracing humility as a way to unity. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Every husband and wife knows this. We tolerate our spouse's defaults, don't we? We love them in spite of their defaults, don't we? We love them for the good things that they are, and we tolerate them for the things that are their weaker side, if you will. That's love. That's what we're talking about in community. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so Paul will make his way through this, and he will conclude, you know, among you, 
And I know at least one theologian that thinks these identifiers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is summing up the whole of a Christian body. That those five tasks, uh, that everybody is one of those in the body of Christ. That may be correct or incorrect in understanding this, but it has great appeal. Some to be apostolic leaders in the community. doesn't mean they're ordained. It means they're simply apostolic leaders. They have that gift of leadership and carrying the body of Christ forward. And some to be prophets who have a prophetic understanding of where we need to go and able to encourage the community to move in that direction. Some to be evangelists. Some to be pastors. Some who teach by their words or by their example. But the purpose of all this is to prepare God's people for their life as the blessed, called to be a blessing. To prepare God's people to be out in the world as positive, effective leaven in a broken world. And also so that the body of Christ, I'm in verse 12, may be built up. For what purpose? And until what? Until we all reach unity in the faith. Until we all become mature. Until we all have a remarkable resemblance, bear a remarkable resemblance to Jesus himself. So, chapter 5, one verse is another lovely summary of this. It's just wonderful alliteration. Paul writes as he continues to work this theme in the fifth chapter, the first verse, brothers and sisters, he says, live a life of love. Live a life of love. Live a life of love. It's not only great for you, it's a benefit to the growth of the community. The choir, living a life of love, draws others into the choir. The altar guild, living a life of love. The, the, the committees of the tea room and gift shop. The team going to Haiti or Honduras. Those working as buildings and grounds committee, living a life of love. So others are drawn into the community. And surprise, surprise, who knows what may happen by December 2011 even. Is that others will come as we invite them, and even better, others will stay because they'll say, I want to be what you are. I want to become a part of what you all have. And things to avoid, pride, triangulation, gossip, it just hurts us rather than helps us. Well, we've been dealing with these historical figures like Luther and Calvin and even C.S. Lewis. Let me conclude with a final historical figure, Thomas, St. Thomas Akempis, who wrote a classic of, um, of the, a classic of the classics, The Imitations of Christ. And he says this of us, those who have seen what Jesus accomplished, those who've had the aha moment, those who living with one another in communities, those who live a life of love to one another, he says, you must first have peace in your own soul before you can make peace between other people. Peaceable people accomplish more good than learned people. Peaceable people accomplish more than the passionate who can often turn good into evil and readily believe the worst. Those who are honest and peaceful turn all things to good and are suspicious of no one. The discontented are easily troubled, he writes. They never know quiet for a moment. 
nor will they leave others at rest. Many times they say the wrong thing and miss the chance of doing good. They are great for saying what others should do, but neglect their own duties. Begin, Akempis writes, begin by looking to your soul, and then you will be better able to have zeal for your neighbor. Live a life of love. The body of Christ, friends of Jesus, who are friends with one another. Well, take this as an assignment to lead today, if you want to do more with this. First, you have a written assignment, if you want to use that. Or simply take these questions home with you and reflect on them tonight or this week. Question number one. Am I too full of pride? Self-examination, just to ask yourself. Am I too full of pride, and do I not exhibit enough humility? And then pray about that. Help me, Lord, if the answer is yes. The problem is, when you answer that question, no, then you've already become prideful again. It's very tricky how we do that to ourselves. Second question, do I triangulate with issues and concerns about others? Is that how I deal with conflict, by triangulation? Third question, do I bless the practice of gossip by either imparting it, passing it on, or receiving it? And fourth question, Have I authentically reached out to others who are unchurched or de-churched? Maybe in my own home or my neighborhood, the workplace, my social settings. Have I reached out to others to find those in the midst of that who are blowing the whistle to say, come and get me and bring me to where you are? From the cross to the aha moment, to participation, to becoming Christ-like. That's the journey we are all called to make in this life. And oh, what a glorious journey it is. Amen.